This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. Bridgerton hasn't escaped people's lips, ideas, or anything. And it's, I've been doing this quite a long time, but nothing, nothing equals the success of Bridgerton, which is absolutely insanity. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. In a surprise episode this week, we are taking you to the set of Bridgerton. You can't have missed the fact that Bridgerton is back on our screens in Series 2. And last November, I drove down to Slough to have a sneak preview of all the fashion and jewellery for Bridgerton. It was an incredibly gloomy, wet day, but the minute I arrived, I was sort of swamped in sunshine because it's always summer in the Georgian corner of London called Bridgerton. And as I walked in, the place was awash with brightly coloured sequins, beads, silks, tools, piled high like a rainbow rolling from the floor to the ceiling, zesty orange and yellow empire-lined frocks sparkling with 10,000 crystals. There were trays of lime and raspberry jewels with metres of crystal tiaras and chokers. Some of them just marked for the crowd, not even for the main personalities. And immediately it became clear to me that there's even more of everything in series two. Bridgerton is bedazzled, bejeweled and embellished in the extreme. Some of the characters had actually left to go to film at the stately Rusham Park nearby. There were fittings on the wall for Lord Fife, Miss Goring, a couple of valleys, and a character described on the cast wall as a nervous Deb. So I had a tour with the costume designer Sophie Canali, who worked closely on series one with Ellen Morozhnik, who we will hear from in a minute about her overall vision for Bridgerton and the style and the costumes and the jewellery. Sophie was incredibly tired. They'd been filming for over seven months, six days a week. So she took me into what they call the shop, which was rolls of bright fabrics, feathers, trims, silk threads, vintage trims in every shade and colour. She said to me that luxury is having everything that matches. So if she can't find the right shade of fabric, and it was tricky because it was COVID, so a lot of places were shut down, she basically had it woven and dyed by the on-site team. I could see there were tool ball dresses being worked on. There was a millinery department, a whole millinery department, a whole tailoring department. Millinery were completing a set of wide-brimmed, stripy silk jockey caps because Bridgerton is off to the races. The detail is extraordinary. I met Polly, who was stitching a wide psychedelic yellow floral border for one dress, which she'd been working on for over 10 days. So it's extraordinary level of detail. And when you think one crowd scene might involve up to 150 people that they're dressing, it really is amazing. There's a new family this season called the Sharmas, who have an Indian heritage. Edwina Sharma is the new debutante who will be presented to the Queen. So at that ball, obviously, there are tons and tons of tiaras, aigrettes, crowns, brooches, all being created by Lorenzo Marchenti, who we'll be hearing from in a minute, who is the prop designer and jewellery maker for both seasons, season one and season two. So they've had to prepare Hindu-inspired jewellery and wedding dress for one of the Sharma sisters. In fact, they have to create two identical wedding dresses with four-meter trains because the scene took up to six weeks to film. Whilst being filmed, the other was being dry-cleaned. Sophie has introduced Spencers into this season, which were 
historically correct short jackets. Women in Georgian period really suffered for their fashion. The light muslin dresses meant that they literally froze, got sick and died. So muslin disease was a real thing. So in this series, she's covered up their arms with spencers to keep them a little bit warm. And of course, jewellery was a popular pursuit in the Georgian era. Their extreme dedication to social pursuits demanded appropriate glitter for balls, masquerades and dances that were held literally every night of the season. So Lorenzo gave me a tour of the jewellery department housed in one part of this enormous great hangar. And it's like a proper jewellery workshop. There are great palettes of beads, brass, old cut crystal stones, turquoise, bezel settings, skeletons of tiaras, and there's even a gold plating machine standing in the corner. Lorenzo has created 200 sets of jewels. White jewels were all the rage during the Georgian period because there were newly discovered mines in Brazil. So diamonds were more available and there were finer methods of cutting them. And they sparkled beautifully at night, especially if they were en tremblant, throwing dazzling beams around the ballroom under candlelight. For Edwina Sharma to be presented to the Queen, Lorenzo's made tons of tiaras, hairpins, cones and aigrettes to hold feathers and plumes for the diamond ball, which was chiming with the white trend of the time. And he's paid homage to the Girondole earring, which was worn at the time, inspired by 18th century candelabra, which had a bow and swung with three large pendant crystal drops to twinkle. The idea was to create this fairyland after dark in the ballroom. I noticed a gold crown embellished with pink enamel roses that looked as if it could have featured in the recent Dolce & Gabbana runway show. Sophie told me that she takes contemporary inspiration as well as antique inspiration from books and artworks. And then she adds contemporary ideas to give a fresh modern twist to each piece. It's not a period correct show, which is all the fun of it, actually. You could say the use of paste is historically accurate, as diamond imitations were popular at court, created by a new form of leaded glass with a gemstone luster which had the bonus of foiling high women who might hold up people and steal their jewellery. And Lorenzo has been painting resin stones to sparkle light opals, foiling the back of paste stones, which is all about intensifying the colours to make them richer and more vibrant to suit the fashion that Sophie is wanting. He showed me one bright ruby necklace that's been created with a quick-release magnetic catch. So... In the scene during filming, it will come off quickly. So we will have a jewellery surprise. So basically, my visit made me realise that we will be dazzled in this new series. And even on the darkest day when I visited, the flowers, the light frothy organza, the yards of sparkle shimmered with summer fun and optimism. So prepared to be dazzled. Series two sparkles, if possible, even more than series one. So please join me to hear about the costumes from Ellen Morozhnik and the jewels from Lorenzo Marcenti. Ellen, I'm so delighted to meet you and talk to you. We are all, I mean, every day at Vogue, we were trying to run a Bridgerton story because that was the biggest click-throughs. Everyone was obsessed by it. It's crazy, it's isn't it? Bridgerton hasn't escaped people's lips, ideas, or anything. And it's, I've been doing this quite a long time, but nothing, nothing equals the success of Bridgerton, which is absolutely insanity. It's incredible. And mm. I mean, it's not just the fact that we're starved of dressing mm. up. You know, we're all at home wearing loungewear and just to have this marvellous escapism. Mm. I think it's much more than that. It's really captivated people. But what do you think it is? You know, because I, I think that, of course, that's the first thing that that's the first note to hit is the escapism of it all and the desire to be something other than what we're in loungewear, sweats, 
just change your top every day if you're on Zoom or what have you, but just a desire for something that is more than. I think it was new on so many levels. The visual impact was so extraordinary. Who would have thought that every single magazine is urging readers how to get the Georgian look? And could you imagine that when you began this project? Well, I, you know, all of what we've just spoken about was not in anybody's imagination because it was not dissimilar to any project that I began. One of the differences, though, was that the size of it was exceptionally large. The other was that knowing what Shonda Shondaland really stands for, their hope and dream is always for it to be aspirational. There's this balance between accuracy and modern. And if you strike it correctly, Shonda is really, really happy. And you've done, you know, you've done the overall brief of aspirational, uh, modern, but yet you're true to form in some way. So that was the overall brief. And then, of course, came the design process. I wanted to start with that opening scene, the ball, when all the debutantes are lined up to be presented at court. Yes, being presented to the Queen. And because I actually found this quote, I don't know if you've heard it, it's from the American ambassador in London. About two years later, after Bridgerton is set, he's called Richard Rush, and he was describing a ball that he attended at the time, which he described as fairyland. And he said, no lady was without her plume. The whole thing was a waving field of feathers. Some were blue like the sky tinged with red. Here you saw violet and yellow. There were shades of green, but most were like tufts of snow. The diamonds encircling them caught the light and threw dazzling beams around. It seemed as if a curtain had risen to show a pageant in another sphere. I thought that was That's exactly beautiful. your ball scene. You did that. That's really a beautiful quote. And what was your starting point for that scene? We had done research about the presentation because we knew it was not just a device created for the story. We knew that it was something that really did happen. We had a few images, but we did find research that was visual at the same time. And so we just went to a ball. I mean, we created 35 or 45 of those presentation gowns. All of the embroideries are different. Every single one of them is different. And the colors of the gowns range from white to eggshell to a bit of a grayer green tonality to a warmer. It was just a range of whites and creams, very vanilla. And then did embroideries. And of course, all the plumes we chose to do were white. In creating that particular scene, myself and, and, and the design staff imagined a promenade of all of these women walking down with the trains flowing in the back of them with the plumes on a carpet, like on a very, very long, long promenade. They didn't shoot that, but we imagined it that way. And then that actually informed the design of each dress. And how many tiaras and headdresses did you make? It matched the amount. I think that we had 35 girls, so there were 35. And some of the tiaras came from Swarovski's archives. Some of them came from other sources. I, I had a team looking for tiaras continually. All of it, I didn't realize how difficult it would be, particularly in finding tiaras in Europe. I really didn't. I mean, I was really surprised. But every day, another one of our buyers came in with a couple more tiaras. Some were tiny, and we found the right girl to put them on. And of course, the more prominent ones went on all our principals and day players that we knew that we'd see continually through the show. It was quite a lot. And every dress was jeweled. We didn't use colored stones at all on any of the jewelry in that scene. 
on anyone. Some we didn't even use jewelry, maybe sometimes a bit of an earring. It was just to make every girl appear to be as fresh as she could be. So they were going scouting around London to find these head ornaments? Anywhere. We go everywhere. When we do a show, it's not just myself. It's all costume designers for the most part. And it really sometimes doesn't even depend on the money. It has what to do with finding. This is a treasure hunt. If you are good treasure hunting, then you have a chance at being a buyer and coming on board because everything has its own difficulties in securing them. Things that you would think you would find in a minute, you don't. So you don't give up. You do the best you can. And if anybody had them in America, it really doesn't matter. As long as you have ones that you like and ones that um, can be in your hands really quickly. And then did you make any of the pieces on set? You were making some of the bracelets, necklaces? In the structure of my department, we had a jewelry department and we had an artisan who is a master jeweler. Lorenzo, the man, I've worked with him on a number of shows now. On Maleficent, for example, if you remember Michelle Pfeiffer's last costume where she comes to battle and she has a full armored piece that's all stoned, there is a whole piece It's in three pieces, but a whole piece, it doesn't look like armor. That is part of the design of it. It is all Swarovski stone, the entire piece, this to this to the shoulders. Lorenzo did it. He's extraordinary. I mean, his talent is beyond your wildest imagination. Whatever you dream, it can be. And he was part of our department. So anything that, you know, frankly, we cannot use It's very difficult to use heritage pieces or really good vintage pieces or the real thing. It's very difficult. The insurance alone would cripple the production. That doesn't stop us because we can, you know, reproduce it. And we had the most amazing man that will look at things and know how to do it in no time flat all things considered, of course. There are certain productions, of course, you do use really beautiful, great jewels that are 100% real, but there are guards that come along with them. And on our production, because we shot all around England, that would be totally impossible. It's also quite appropriate that you use paste jewellery because it came in at that time. It became incredibly fashionable because there was a guy called Friedrich Strauss who came up with a way of doing lead powder onto glass to make it um, lustrous like a gemstone, and it became very Mm -hmm. fashionable. Actually, that was a process that Lorenzo did use because there were colours sometimes that we were looking for that were really difficult to find even in, you know, reproduction jewellery or other jewellery to find. And if Lorenzo is making it, he could shift the colour or create the colour and so on. And he used that process. So a lot of the women were having um, their diamond jewellery replicated so they could travel and not worry about it being stolen. Kind of what we do now as well. What we do now, yes. So where did you store all this? If you were shooting, uh, where did you store all the jewellery and all the gowns? Well, we are like, when we go to shoot... We are the equivalent of a traveling circus. What we have are trucks and trucks and trucks and trucks. And then, for example, on a day that we were shooting the presentation, where there are quite a few extras and, of course, our principals, all of our principals, all of those wares, all of those costumes and jewelry get stored in the wardrobe truck. And there are a number of them. It's run by the wardrobe master, and he is responsible for everything. A lot of the jewelry gets kept in the safe, and the dresses are stored in the wardrobe trucks. What happens on a day that we're going to shoot all of it, there will be secondary trucks that come in from our warehouse, fully packed with what's necessary, because everybody has been fit prior It's set up in a tent. You probably would marvel at the organization and how it actually all comes together on the day. They'll say, how many hours do you need to dress? I am not the wardrobe person at all. That's like a whole other team that does this, but 
they might say we need an hour, but makeup and hair might need two hours. So that maybe is three hours prior to the time. It's all organized down to the second. How important is it uh, when you use jewelry on a character to actually um, help the actress get into that character? Do you think jewelry really plays a big part? Oh, yes. I think that everything plays the part. And the jewelry, particularly, because we were using so many elements, layers, and different elements that could set your imagination on fire and create a mystery and a fantasy, and it be sexy and luscious at the same time. Everything needed to work together. It was symphonic in a way, okay? So when one would do a piece, for example, that was absolutely spot on period, you would only look at everything that was 100% accurate. The joy that we had in creating the world was that we looked at everything that not only was accurate, but things that surrounded the idea that could have been at different periods, earlier, a little bit later, but still worked in our world because we were adapting what 1813 was about. We adapted it. There was no way that our intention was to have total accuracy. We wanted to make an interpretation of that Regency period. And so it gave us a lot more freedom. And at the same time, you have to be careful with that freedom not to abuse it. So we were fortunate in that we had so much that we could play with and change and um, create. When you design a character and everything is done, jewelry will create her signature and will make that character become exactly who you want and what message that character will send as she's doing her work. It could be a he or a she. Jewelry is the signature. It does not ever disappoint. Do you think it helped the diamonds or the, the paste diamonds? We call them diamonds, Carol. Okay, just diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> the diamonds. Do you think the diamonds helped Phoebe get into her, her head space as that debutante? She's very small. She's tiny. Her proportion is quite petite. And so that's one thing that you always have to consider, how that actor moves into character and how that actor becomes character. And when you watch her walk, when you watch her move, when you watch everything about her, you saw that you had to be very, very delicate in what you added to her, what diamonds were to be added to her. What, for example, when the prince gives her a necklace, that is quite a large necklace. And I always thought it was perfect for the scene and it was beautiful and it actually told the story, but you wouldn't select a necklace of that scale for her to wear all the time. So by comparison, we looked for pieces for Phoebe if she was going to wear any accessories, they'd have to be tiny. And one of them that she wears at the very beginning for a while is a tiny, it's basically, I think it's like less than a carat of a diamond in a setting that you don't know what it is. And it is onto, you know, a chain and it just sits at her throat. But it just was small enough, delicate enough, it just was a piece that was able to become her. That's the best way to put it. Maybe, too, it pushes the narrative because that big necklace showed the prince exactly. gave her the wrong thing and he wasn't the right guy. Exactly. And that's who she would become if she chose to kind of begin to walk down that path. And clearly it wasn't of her fate. But you could see the difference. I mean, I think that that's a good example in how you see the difference of the scale of the jewel, how you 
design and choose the appropriate accessories or the scale of the appropriate accessories for a character and how she will embody them. It looked like you had the most fun dressing the queen. Yes, she was sensational. She was really, really sensational. You know why? Because in the beginning, we didn't know that that was going to be the most elaborate and non-continuity, non-like make her be whoever, whatever you want her to be each and every time. That's what an actor brings, you know, to the table when they come into the fitting room. We knew what the silhouette was because the research that we had done, we found that Queen Charlotte really stayed in the same silhouette since the time that she was brought onto the throne. Where did you do your research? Everywhere we could. In museums, we did them in every single possible publication you could find of any sort, any book. And also what you do when you read about certain things, they could be contrary You know, so then you have to go deeper to find what you want to be the truth. And we did some research um, in the Victoria Albert Museum. We did some research through researchers. And most of the time, what happens is that I really like in the end to have a visual image. And so that would be through paintings. And there were quite a few paintings at the National Gallery and they were perfect. We said, that's it. That's who she'll be. Golda came in the room and she was far more elaborate or could be far more elaborate than we imagined. And the hair and makeup team were sensational, really talented. And there was a notion because we had a number of different images. There was a notion of, well, what if she is in a different wig every time we see her. Well, we all love that idea. So then we tried to do, all right, every time you see her, she'll be in a new gown and she'll be in a new wig. So that in itself is a very, very expressive element, right? And so what we do, basically, I created a very kind of in-depth lookbook at the very beginning of the show to create the world of Bridgerton because I was actually the first one hired on the show. Of course, Shondaland said, well, what will it be? And I knew that I had to create not just mood boards, but a lookbook of everything. This is the show. This is the show that you will have. And they fell in love. And so basically we were able to, and because we had to work, work very fast. So we were able to actually lead the way of each department that came on so everyone could be on the same page. So we knew what Queen Charlotte was going to appear like, but what the hair designer brought to the table was genius. I mean, I just thought it was every day it got bigger and bigger and bigger (laughs) and there was more jewels in it or there were more ribbons in it or there were more who knows what. But he, they had a ball. And Golda, our artist who, who played the queen so brilliantly, was just so game for it that it was sensational. It was a very difficult costume to wear continually through the hours of the day, but she was up for it. And the ropes of pearls and chokers. There was never enough, you know, because with the queen, she was one who you could just fill her from head to toe, literally. If you didn't put anything around her neck, she'd look naked or it it would just look silly. Did you reuse any of the jewelry? In different scenes, but put it in different combinations because sometimes you just, you know, sometimes her ropes of pearls and diamonds, I think that was used in pretty much the exact combination of it between the first scene at the presentation and then the wedding when she comes to the wedding party. But there are pieces, we take it apart all the time and say, how does this work and so on. But then of course, with the red and golds, we didn't use any of that, you know, or sometimes we threw it in. How big is the lookbook that you created at the beginning? It's about 16 pages. I mean, that is a sizable book because it also contains the palette. It contains research in it. And it contains, most importantly, the direction that we'll go in. Did it contain some images of Georgian jewelry? A bit. But when I do it, it's basically all one. 
you know, so it's not, here's the jewelry, here are the clothes, here's the hair, here's the reel. No. In the featurette, actually, um, they made a costume featurette. I think it was Netflix or Chandelier, they did it together. It's online. The character of Prudence is interviewed, and you see on the screen, she came in when she first came in, and we showed her the lookbook, But because we, we had to show each and every actor the lookbook so they understood what the direction of the show was because they thought that it would be really more like a Jane Austen show. They expected a bonnet and they expected muslin and beige and things that we didn't use. I mean, it was not our aesthetic. So she she said in this featurette, well, here's the featurette. This is the reality. This is what we are doing. Or this is the reality. This is fashion and this is Shonda. This is Shonda, meaning this is how we make it ours. Will some of the jewellery in those looks be repeated in the second series? Some of it will be in different combinations. Some of it will be in, you know, jewellery that was worn by certain principles that had to be returned to wherever it came from. Sometimes you can't get that back. So as long as it doesn't have to match, you can do something similar or you could go on to another piece. So now to the man that Ellen describes as having magic hands. Lorenzo, tell me, how many pieces do you think you made for the Bridgerton series? A lot. A lot because Ellen wanted uh, sets, which means each um, woman has a set, which is a necklace, uh, earrings, bracelet, tiara, because we have a lot of balls, so a lot of tiaras. So we counted more or less, it was like uh, uh, 70 sets, which means um, probably... 250, 300 pieces, because we also have worked for uh, a little bit for the extras, but not a lot. For the extras, the, a lot of things were bought or rented in the rental houses. And for the extras, we have done for the crowd, we have um, done the, this, this tiara for the ball, for the presentation ball. It was very interesting. It was a quite big challenge to make. We have, I think we have done 37 tiaras. And uh, it has been something that we have used also for other scenes. Because um, if you remember in the presentation uh, ball, there is these three feathers of the Prince of Wales, this um, etiquette, I don't know very well, but anyway, the three feathers. So uh, we need to have a tiara with the feathers. It was a little bit shame, don't use the tiara for other scenes. So we, we have a prepared system to put the, tia, the feathers on the tiara, but after the scene, to take off the, tia, the feathers, it can use again the, the tiara for other scene. So it was, this was a, a technical challenge, weren't interesting and nice. Uh, I think we achieved because the tiara now you can use for any scene and they will use again for the ball because there will be for sure, this is a film with balls, thanks God. When there is ball, there is always work for me, so it's perfect. How long did you have to make all those pieces? I cannot complain. We have had enough time uh, because I think we worked nine months on this uh, on this film. Uh, but the problem for us is that we have to be short in, the, in our making because it's true that we cannot spend too many time in a jewel. It will, wouldn't be um, economically uh, interesting for them. So we have to do what they used to say. We have to do in two days what people uh, made in in two months, you know? So that, that's the problem. We have to give this feeling that of real, precious, but working quite quickly. And thanks God, we have a lot of supplies that help us. And now we, we, know, we, we hope to give this feeling. Did you work with Ellen on the design of some of the pieces? I mean, did you discuss Georgian motifs, the ribbons, the bows, the feathers? Did you discuss that together and decide on the design? Uh, this is an interesting question because I think for someone working in my situation, it's, it's essential to uh, understand what the, the custom designer want without put your imagination away. Because it's true that there is always this possibility not to not understand what the person wants or what the person, you know, what you imagine in your head is not probably what the person 
imagine his her head. So you have to understand this and stick to this idea. After you can do a little bit when you when you are busy, when the person trusts you or you understood what she want. Uh, I I felt more uh, free. I allowed myself to make some decision because you know they are always busy. So sometimes okay, you choose one stone, you choose one model because you already know the, 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 what the person could like. But for example, speaking about Ellen and the, the, the design, story when you start the film, you, you go to search for document, documents, Im images to, to be into the period. Where did so you I, search for those, Lorenzo? Books. I have a lot of books, thanks God. So I'm very proud of my collection of historical books. And now it's through with the internet, it's very easy also. You go on Pinterest, you have so many, Instagram, you know, you always have uh, images, very, very interesting. And, you know, at, at the beginning of this film, I started with this research I found cameos, micro mosaic, but what is was interesting that Helen didn't want this. Helen has his own uh, world of creation. It's true that it, 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 it worked because she has done a very beautiful work. So it's true that she brought me out from the classical Georgian period to have this colored, even oversized jewel that at the beginning I was a little bit surprised, but finally it was good because especially the Featherington. The Featheringtons were the social climbers of the story, weren't they? Slightly brash, nouveau riche, so they needed the oversized, overcoloured, try-hard jewels. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true that the, the costume, the, the fabric, everything in the Featherington showed this kind of uh, nouveau riche. So it was very, very well, well thought. She has been very clever. But it was interesting also because at the same time, for example, for the Bridgerton, especially for Daphne, we have done very tiny, tiny things, very refined, very delicate. And uh, it's funny also because in the, the original uh, jewel, you find uh, something that is very contemporary. So, for example, Cressida has a, a copy, almost a copy of uh, Georgian jewelry, but when you Look at the at, at the teeth. It's very contemporary. But I think all the white jewelry that was very much of the period, wasn't it? Because they'd just done these big diamond discoveries in Brazil. It was all yeah. very white diamonds, pearls, marcasin yeah. cut steel, and all the candlelight flickering off that sort of whiteness, which you did so effectively. Oh, thank you. That's why I like also this work because it brings you in the history uh, uh, from another side. You know, when you are at school, they teach you the, the, the story of the war of the king. We don't, it's not very interesting. But when you go from the um, costume, props, whatever, um, architecture, you enter into the story from another door, uh, which is more interesting because it's a social uh, history of the common people. Uh, for example, it's true, as you said, there was uh, this, um, this period of discovery, the, the, the Grand Tour, the Pompeii, the Camino. The... So it was, it, it's a very interesting period also. I haven't had uh, occasion to work on this period before. How did you make them appear old? How did you give them that kind of old patina? Yeah, we cheat on a lot. I mean, we have a uh, we have a brass that it looks like gold. We have or silver. We have a plastic or glass that look like diamonds. And uh, the problem is that now with the high definition, you can see more and more in the, in the big plan. But it's true that we have, a, for example, everything is stone. We can paint a little bit if the color is not right. We can um, change the nature with the resin or with the glass paint or glass paint with a little coat of varnish that protect the, 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 from the, 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 because glass paint is not very, very strong. Or uh, for the, 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 the metal, everything is metal. It's always good to give a little patina. We usually use um, acrylic, finally, is the, the best one, because it's something that you can manage very well. Uh, it gives this feeling of dust into the jewel. I mean, for example, especially in silver, it works very well, even in gold. You have the shining side, but you have this kind of life into the ray, I don't know how to say, the, the, of, of, the, of, the, of the jewel. Uh, it's something that is essential. Otherwise, it seems that the jewel come out from the box. So, Lorenzo, as you go from movie to movie, and I know you've worked with Ellen a lot, like on Maleficent, and, uh, do you have a great trunk of 
jewels and stones that you take with you on each movie? Oh, you touch something very delicate. Because it's true that I think one of the good things to work with me is <laughs> now that I have a huge stock. And without my stock, I couldn't work. Because uh, I, I have uh, nine pallets, you know, can you imagine? It's like a, a room full of stock. Yeah, this is, could be also a problem because this obliged me to be only in quite big project because it, I have all these uh, circles with me. Uh, without this, I cannot work because, for example, I have a stock of beads, a stock of pearl, a stock of uh, metal frame. And uh, uh, I can take it and start to work Im immediately. If you have to buy these, uh, it's impossible. For example, if you need one bead and you don't have it, you have to buy, you cannot buy one bead. You have to buy a packet with 100. If you don't have, if you have all the size, all what you need in stock, because you, you bring your stock with you, you can work immediately, saving money, because you save a lot of money. And uh, so now I think I couldn't, I couldn't work without my stock. I will be very frustrated. Also, we have a machine because we have a gilding machine. It's which is very good because you are independent. Because usually you prepare your metal piece and you send somewhere to to gold or silver plate. We are independent on this, so we can gold plate, silver plate without a problem, which is a big freedom. So you've collected things for years. Yeah. Yeah. So you knew from a, a young age that this is what you wanted to do, to be a prop maker and jewelry maker. I didn't know that it existed, this work. So that's why I'm, I'm so happy in a way, because it's true that I'm doing a work that I love, and I didn't know that it existed. I, I, I made a, um, a school art in, in Florence. I have a scenography and costume. But life, thanks God, brought me to have the opportunity, the chance to can enter into this direction that is the one that I love the most. Because finally I, I thought a lot of time that I could go in the set designer or custom designer, but finally this is what I want to do, what I like to do. So it's, uh, I'm very, very lucky, very... But uh, since young I was in this direction, you know. For example, in Maleficent, working with Ellen, was more, we have to do um, queeras for the Queen. This was the, mainly the work we have done with her for Michelle Pfeiffer, this kind of queeras that she has with pearl beads. And um, so you have to use all the material that you um, know, find for new material, find for new, new even the resin, they change a lot. They, all, all the time you have a new materials. Um, that make your life easier. So it's a search of between technology, do-it-yourself, artistic things. It's a mix. I also, you mix leather and metal and glass and plastic, uh, whatever you find. Sometimes it's true that I shouldn't say, but for example, for the Maleficent, with, uh, for the shoulder, she had the a pot of yogurt under her sh on your shoulder. We don't have to say this. <laughs> there was a very nice structure made very professional. But to have this shape that she has on the shoulder was a, a yogurt pot. So any yogurt pots in Bridgerton? Have you had to improvise in that way? <laughs> no, we have been very professional in this. Uh, but no, because it was very classical jewelry. Finally, no, even if the shape or the color was was different, but. No, metal and glass and plastic sometimes. And when you're working, do you prefer going, say, into the future and Star Wars that you've worked on, or do you like going back into history, into, say, the Regency period? What do you enjoy most? When there is a challenge, is interesting. Probably it's true that I like um, historical things, especially period that I haven't worked on. For example, one of the, my one of my joy to have the chance to work on Egyptian film that I I would never thought that it would have been possible. It finally it happened, so I was very very happy because it was a new challenge. But a future is interesting. Uh, for example, Star Wars was very 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 interesting. Uh, Michael Kaplan have a very nice idea, good ideas, and uh, but the future sometime you go in something more. Uh, industrial uh, look. I don't know how to explain. So it's more the uh, this 3D print. You know, now people use a lot the 3D print. 
it's, it's something, this is out of my area. I, I'm not interested in, in this because you have to be very, very into computer and this is not my area. I'm more really do-it-yourself. Once I worked in a Neolithic film, which means it's, I don't know, 20,000 before Christ. So it was very, everything was really organic for once. Uh, beads handmade with the clay, straws, um, hemp. It was very nice. So you're really a one-man museum. You've got all these different periods that you take around with you. I'm big, big cheater on these. I mean, I can be... <laughs> and this is the challenge. This is what we like. Can you give us a little sneak peek into Bridgerton Series 2? What's the jewellery vibe going to be for that? Are we going to have more of the same... A different look? Have we got more characters coming in with a different style? For sure, Ellen gave a direction. Uh, it was very successful. And it has been very, very honest, it has been interesting to work with Ellen. And uh, now we have another costume designer, which is uh, Sofia Canali. She's very, she assisted um, Ellen in the first series, season. So she knows very well this world. Uh, she's a good designer. She took the uh, Ellen direction, but giving her her vision a little bit. So there will be uh, the same something, but different. Did I reply your question? No, what is different? <laughs> what will be different? We'll see. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we are very... It's still colored, sparkling, Featherington, Bridgerton. This is keep going, still keep going. And men in jewellery? Because we loved it when the Duke wore a brooch. You know, we also have a, have made fobs and seal watching things. Yeah, there will be brooches also for men. But the men are always a small amount of things. So, yeah, it's interesting because for the first season, we have had to do a big quantity of men jobs. For example, fobs. You know, fobs with trinkets, with the watches. So we almost make some industrial production because we have to do, I don't know, probably 100 of these fobs that they didn't count in the pieces that we have done. So, and uh, um, now we are more into the main character. So, for example, now in this moment I'm working on this seal. You can do one by one, by hands, you know, it's more interesting. I think there'll be a million people out there now wanting to be a prop maker, a jewellery maker. You know, what is funny is to see how people think that it's easy. I mean, I don't want to be... Uh, but some people say, ah, I can do this, I can do this. Ah, I like because I beads at home. Yeah, it's easy to do, but professionally, it's a proper work. It's not, you know, how many persons, ah, can I come work with you because I, yeah, but I are you really, it's, it's a work. Can you solder? Can you uh, manage the resin? It's a proper, it's interesting because uh, it's, uh, for me, it's the best to work in the world. I couldn't do anything else at this point. And if you had um, one tip to give any would-be young people listening who want to be a prop jewelry maker, what would you tell them? This is a difficult question because there is a, a, a normal uh, common sense. You say, okay, if you do want to do this job, you are passionate. If you have the passion for this, you are curious. So you, you, you naturally, you go searching for information, technical information. For example, for me, uh, I don't know, watching... Um, show on the TV, repair shop, for example, I don't know if you know, <laughs> or on Instagram, there is a, a post with people uh, working jewelry, also because I'm not the proper jewelry, so I have to learn, I learn every day, yeah? or for example, speaking about more general props maker, I learn a lot from a millinery uh, that I work with in a previous film, how to to work, everything was on the head, the weight, how important it is that everything is light. I mean, you, you, you steal information everywhere, where you, where you can. If I have to, to speak to someone young who start, they would say, be ready to work uh, a lot at the beginning for nothing, because at the beginning you have to start really, be patient, eh? Don't create problem. You are, you are paid or you are there to solve a problem. So solve the problem. And start buying beads. Start your collection. <laughs> very early. Very early. Start because it will be essential. Essential. My stock is my 
is like my my most pre, my stock and my books. The books is more because the idea to have uh, these books historical. I I count by meter. So uh, even if I rarely watch, just in, but the stock is essential. Essentially, this is a uh, one day you will you will see the stock. I hope. And we'll see some of the stock on series two, no doubt. And we're looking forward to that. And Lorenzo, thank you so much for sharing these secrets that bring Bridgerton alive. And we're longing to see series two to see what you're going to do in that. Hey, won't be long, won't be long. No, no, we are already working on this. Very tantalizing, we can't wait. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. And if you liked it, please share it any way that you can. You can find us on Instagram where you can view images of the jewellery we talk about. And please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts, where we'd love a rating and a comment. So join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget because we're going to visit Chatsworth, the stately home of the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. We're going to have a glimpse into the extraordinary collection and the passion and decisions that go into creating a collection that's been there since the 16th century. As well as talking about all the historic gems and tiaras, we'll be talking with Tarka Kings about the newly opened exhibition at Chatsworth, Living With Art We Love. She has created some new artworks involving jewellery, which she will describe to us. And these are modern pieces that will now lie alongside the historic gems in the Chatsworth collection. So join me then. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, And you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton.